Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Okay, let's uh, turn in our Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 6. I am going to be reading pretty lengthy section. So kids, if you would get out a Bible in the pew underneath, I think it would be helpful for you to follow along. I'm going to pause along the way of reading and say a few things to try to keep your attention, if I can. Uh, I think it's on 891, kids, as you're looking through the Bible. You can maybe just use your finger and follow right along. We're in John 622, and we'll read to verse 71 to the end of the chapter. All right, Evia asks me what my favorite song is. I assume she means Christmas song. Is that true, Evia? Is she here? There, she's back there. Oh, <laughs> well, she's going to miss it now. I don't know if I have a favorite Christmas song. Uh, the last song we're singing today is up there. That's a really good one, so that would be it. My favorite regular Christian song would be uh, Be Thou My Vision. That's a good one. All right, so if you're all there, uh, Merry Christmas again. We're looking at the purposes for which Christ came in the Gospel of John. So Christmas, Christ coming. What are the explicit reasons we're told in this Gospel that Jesus came? And I wanted to save this one for last. He came to give us eternal life. And that news shines more brightly in John 6 than anywhere else. And the reason he repeats himself so often is it's very difficult for us in our own minds and our own hearts to believe that we have eternal life. We can't imagine that. We forget it. We live so frequently just for what's right in front of us. We know our own sin. We know how hard life is. And we just can't imagine that he has given us life forever. And then we'll see that many reject this, and it causes incredible pain uh, relationally within families and friendships and so on. And so we'll see all that here. Jesus, just before we're going to read, he fed the 5,000. Uh, the disciples got into a boat, went across the sea to Capernaum, and Jesus, if you remember, walked out to them and stilled the sea and so on. So they're looking for him because they fed. He was he fed them. Uh, they were wowed by that. And as many of us struggle with, our God is sometimes just our belly. And so they're seeking a God who can fill their bellies. So that's where we are. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Note that. Now this, you're going to see throughout this that he uses the term disciples both to mean his faithful 11 who loved him, and just the crowd who they're seeking him, but not seeking him. 
They want the circus show. They want their bellies fed. And so we have to beware of this within us. Verse 25, that when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. So the the Jews grumbled about him because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Right, see, see. There's a division already happening here. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. One of the things we see in the Gospel of John are these I am statements. There's seven of them. This is the first of them. So this is Jesus saying pretty clearly to the Jews back to Exodus, "I, I am the I am. I am the one true living God. And I am come here for you. I am Savior. I uh, Look to me. And they're hating him because of this. They despise him because of this. He continues, verse 49, the, Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. <clears throat> this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
Then the, Jew, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drink my blood abides in me and I in him. Isn't that crazy? As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not the bread, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So I'm not going to get into this, but just real quick, what is what does he mean that you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood? What is he talking about, kids? What do you think? It's much simpler than you think it will be. What is he getting at here? Just faith. That's it. You have to come to him, seeing in him all that you need for eternal life and belief. And, and, and believing him is like, your soul being nourished forever. Like eating real bread and drinking real wine. It's just faith. That's it. That's all he's talking about here. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I think they're angry. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you who do not, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. All right, let's pray. Father, your testimony of your son here in John 6 is incredible. It's wonderful. Teach our souls to trust in your word, to feed on it, so that we might have eternal life. Keep us from being like so many who are offended. Turn to us, please, and be gracious to us, that we might love your name. Make your face to shine upon us and teach us, God. Help our eyes to shed streams of tears for our own sin and for the sins of this world. And that we might hope alone in your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we must do the good work of faith to always remember that God's promise of eternal life is far greater than all of your own doubts and fears and feelings. He is here in these verses unmistakably promising 
that any who come to his Son have eternal life. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You remember that Mary, when the angel told her that she would be with child, that the child was the Son of God, and that it would happen not by a man, but by the Holy Spirit, just simply said, okay, may it be to me as you have said. That's the kind of faith we need to respond to what we're hearing here. That we have eternal life in Christ alone. And so we're supposed to read this and gain confidence and courage in this world to abide in Christ because he has promised us eternal life. Christ is given to us as food that endures to eternal life. Jesus himself sweetly reminds us that he is the bread of life come down from heaven and gives life to the world. That is to all kinds of people who have the faith to eat of him and they'll never hunger and thirst again. We are given even greater hope because we are told that it was the will of the eternal Father that all who look to the Son and believe in Him will have eternal life. He puts the gospel so simply and sweetly in verse 47. Whoever believes has eternal life. Now I want to impress this on you because of two things. One, we hardly ever think of eternal life. We think of temporal life. We think of here and now. That is not wrong to think of the here and now. You have to live in this world. You have to get things done. You have to consider what you're going to do this afternoon when people are coming over tomorrow morning. You do have to be very concerned with life. But what about eternal life? Why is it that we find it so difficult to think of it at all? We'll get to that in a moment. And second... Because even when we do think of eternal life, even when we do think about the promise made in the gospel that we'll live forever if we come to faith in Christ, we find it very, very difficult to believe it. We don't trust God. We don't think He's that good. We actually trust what we think ourselves more than we trust God. And what we think ourselves is our own sin overwhelms any trust in God. How could He give me eternal life? We think that we haven't reached a kind of perfection or at least some level of godliness that the promise of eternal life could actually be true for us. And I was thinking like the star that led the wise men, that needs, like the promise of eternal life in Christ needs to be just kept before our eyes like that. And that we would distrust ourselves, distrust our own thinking, distrust our fear, distrust our doubts, and trust Him. Why is it that we're so given to trusting our doubts, but not trusting Him who sent His only Son? Why is that? And so we can live very carelessly. We can become only concerned with what's going on today. We can live entrusting ourselves to our thinking and our doubts and our fears more than God's Word. And doesn't Jesus here plainly say, as plainly as possible, that anyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up in the last day. And so you are meant to put your hope and trust in what He said there, and not in what you think. And when Jesus said, if you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, what He means is, you put your faith in what I'm here saying. That's all that he's getting at. 
So he means to reassure you. He means to speak sweetly and comfortably in your ears that he keeps his own forever. So this reminds us, though, that from the very beginning, God is the kind of God who gives what we need. Didn't he create the world and fill it with food fit for you? A lot of it. And then he gave you taste buds to enjoy the food that he gave to nourish your body. He has never been stingy in his provision. Uh, one of my daughters was reading about taste buds last night. And your taste buds die and renew about every 10 days so that things keep tasting well. But once you're 40, they don't renew as often. And so you need more salt on your food. God did that. God is the kind of God who fills this world with what we need. And before sin, before Genesis 3, we walked in innocency with him, without doubt or fear, perfect happiness, with the possibility of living forever in that condition. Our bodies and our souls existing without sickness or death, any fear in our conscience, God with us forever. But we sinned. We fell from a great height. Our souls died. They shriveled up. Our bodies were now prone to injury and illness and age and death, like our taste buds. The creation itself groans and no longer produces as it once did. We were separated from life, from the Son of God. And so our souls still hunger and thirst, don't they? We try, we work really hard to satisfy our souls. That's all that we do. We're empty and we want to be filled I heard a story this past week of a faithful Christian sister speaking at a secular university about the Christian truth of male and female and marriage and sex and so on. And part of what she was teaching is that, well, God made us to only have sex within marriage, not outside of marriage, and only with one spouse until death parts us and that actually the reason that Christians can, you know, withhold themselves from sex outside of marriage and give themselves only to sex with one person within marriage is because God can so satisfy you. In fact, a, a Christian single can even be so satisfied in God that their sexual desires can be denied because God can be that satisfying. That's hard, she explained, but there can be a deep, intimate fellowship with God. And that that is the key to living in this world in a way that produces life. So all of our no's in this world are worth it for pleasure in God. Afterwards, a psychology professor came up and said to her, you're sick. There's something wrong with you. He said, what you really want is sex. But you make up all of this baloney to kind of Hide your sexual desires and 
and instead talk about love for God. All, all you mean is that you want to have sex. And, and, and the world gets it. The world gives itself what it wants. Her response was wonderful. No, 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 she said. I beg to differ. What the world really wants is life with God, but it disguises our hunger and thirst for him with all this ridiculous, promiscuous sex. We want God. We're hungry and thirsty for him. We were made for that. And once we lived without any other overwhelming desires, in fact, all of other desires were fulfilled because we were satisfied in God. But it's the other way now, isn't it? Even you as a Christian, you hunger and thirst. And not being satisfied in God as you know you want to, you seek it in other things. We're starving in our souls. But there's nothing apart from Christ eating and drinking of Christ that can nourish your soul and give you eternal life. He alone is the bread that gives eternal life. And in throughout this passage, what he's saying is, I came down from heaven to satisfy you eternally. That's why he was born. That's why he came as he did, that you might have eternal life. Now that tells us something about how great he is. Nothing else can satisfy you, can it? What are you satisfied with? Does anything else curb your appetite? Does it ever scratch the itch satisfactorily? Our experience is that Christ does do that. Now, on earth, before we truly see him, it's just partially. The full is coming. One of the delights of singing together is you find some measure of satisfaction as we sing together in him. That's just an appetizer for the full banquet to come. And so this tells us of how great he is. So I want to apply this in two ways. First, just viewing Christ, and second, how we view others. One of the... I'm going to mess with language a little bit, so don't get too hung up on this. Let's do this. One of the ways that our world is trying to satisfy our souls is with just viewing things, particularly women. Women are just made to be looked at and aroused at. That's all that you exist for. Did you know that in our world? So ladies, would you rather be looked at or seen and known? There's a difference between looking at something and seeing. Looking at someone and really seeing. To look at someone is just simply to make use of the externals to gratify your own carnal desires. It's surface. To see is to go beyond that and to understand who she is as a creation of God. Worthy of dignity and honor. A daughter of someone. A wife to someone. With an eternal soul. Everyone would like to be seen. To be known. Let's relate that to Christ. You can see in John 6 that there are some who just look at Jesus. All they look at is someone who can do magic tricks that fill their belly. They don't see him for who he is. He fed them. He healed them. He cared for them. That's good. But when his word offended them, they didn't see anything in him, so they 
turned away from him and no longer walked with him. They weren't seeking in him eternal life. They didn't see him as anyone or anything that could satisfy them forever. They didn't see their souls as sick and needing forgiveness. They didn't see him in the truth, the truth that he is God's eternal son come from heaven to give them eternal life. But Peter, we see, speaking on behalf of the disciples, saw him. And the words at the end of this passage are very memorable, very incredible. Lord, to whom would we go? (laughs) You alone. You have the words of eternal life. They see him. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So they were looking for eternal life. And they saw in Christ, through his words, through the promise of the Father, that he alone is the one in himself that could give eternal life. So this is what Jesus says when he says this incredibly hard saying. Scandalous, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What he's saying is, if you truly see me, you'll see one who can satisfy and nourish your soul forever. So eat of me. Drink of me. Trust me. Give yourself to me. Give your allegiance to me. So do you see him? Do you see in him eternal life? The the one alone in whom is life forever. Or is he just... Something that you do every Sunday. Is he just a means to keep your parents happy? I mean, he should be a means to keep your parents happy, but, you know, you just go through the motions to keep mom or grandmom off your back. Or is he your life? To whom will you go for eternal life? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Where will you go to live forever? What, who can do that for you? Kids, you have an eternal soul. It needs life. Where will you go? You can wear yourself out seeking satisfaction in the world and you will wear yourself out. And so we have to see him. But seeing him, as the food and drink that alone gives eternal life, also teaches us how to see others. How do you see others? What do we learn from Christ on how we need to not just merely look at others, but see them? Jesus came to earth seeing people in need of eternal life and being willing to spend himself that he could give it to them. Do you see people as those Firstly, chiefly, needing eternal life. What do you see? Husbands, what do you see in your wife? Do you see as we hear at every wedding in Ephesians 5 that the reason you were given to her is to wash her with the water of of the word so that she might continue on in this life forever? Is that what you see her as? What do you see her as? Children, what do you see in your parents? Do you see those that are children of God seeking Him for eternal life and do what you can do to 
encourage dad and mom to eternal life in Christ? What do you see in others at work? Do you see souls that will be eternally alive in heaven or hell? Jesus came in incredible mercy. So don't treat that cheaply. Now I'm not saying that we should be manipulated by the world who will constantly hold over our head our need their understanding of Christianity is just to never do anything offensive and just go along quietly. I'm not saying that, but I am saying we should be foremost concerned for the eternal life of others. Second, we do see in these verses God's sovereignty. I want to close with this, but just you can entrust others to the sovereign goodness of God and not have to freak out all the time. God is the Father and He is incredibly good and He brings whom He will to His Son. And so parents, rest in the Father for your children. Church members see each other as belonging to the Father first. Family members, your spouses, extended family are chiefly belonging to God. You don't have to freak out. You can rest in Him. Third, we do see here that your allegiance to Christ will often be tempted by others. You see that, right? I believe when we read in verse 66 that many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, the main issue was that they didn't want others to think less of them for following one who said such crazy things. When when Jesus said, listen, you can't have eternal life unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, they didn't want others to think or to know that they were aligned with him. And so they feared way more what people thought than having eternal life in Christ. And when Jesus asked the twelve, do you want to go away as well? That's what he's asking them. Who do you love? Who do you fear? Who has your allegiance? Who has your heart? And so you'll have to see others through fidelity and faith and love for Jesus Christ first. Now the good news is God has not left you alone. He's given you a, a heavenly family, a church family. Christ's people, though everybody else leaves them, will never ever have to be alone. But you will often in this world experience the pain and difficulty of having others reject because you love Christ and are given to his word. Please don't misunderstand me. I don't mean that this is licensed to be a jerk or to constantly throw things in the face of others or to stand in self-righteous pride, thinking yourself so better than others because you love Jesus more than everybody else and you're the most faithful follower that's ever been and nobody else is and you're insufferable. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying by normal, simple fidelity to Christ and his word, it will cause relational anguish. And you'll often think that you've lost your mind. So true Christianity, following Christ, is the fear of God to suffer for his truth at the hands of others. It's always been true. 
fake Christianity, worldly Christianity, is to always sacrifice the truth for the sake of others. Now here, when Jesus was saying these things before Jewish people, it was so offensive for them to hear that Jesus is the Son of God sent from heaven. There is in our world an offense, not mainly at that, but at the doctrine of male and female and sexuality in the Bible. That's where you'll suffer always. The doctrine of marriage, the doctrine of having children, the doctrine of not aborting children, tearing them out of their mother's wombs. And so we'll have to face this. And so where might you be tempted to love Others more than Christ and His Word. These things are never simple. How you take a stand, when you take a stand. They're, they're not simple. They're always very complicated. And you will often fail, sometimes being too hard where you should be soft, and sometimes being too soft where you should be hard. Christ is sufficient for those things. One thing that you can do that we have found has been very helpful is get the advice of others. Lay the situation out before them and say, hey, in this Thanksgiving, how should we do this? We don't know what to do. What should we say? What shouldn't we say? What should, get, get some advice. Don't, don't think you'll be sufficient. But this will be tested. And those tests are good. They are gifts from God to strengthen our resolve to follow Him, to reassure us that we have eternal life. But let's return to where we began. We must constantly turn our minds to the Father's kindness and the strong reassurance that He'll never turn away from any who come to His Son. Listen to John 6.37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 44. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 65. This is why I told you that no one come can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Sometimes we take those statements in the Bible of God the Father's loving sovereignty as offensive. But I think that's mainly because we view the Father as very, very stingy. We read that all who the Father gives me will come to him and we say, like we think that he's going to be very, very limited and careful. We don't see the generosity of God the Father in giving billions to the Son for him to save. In fact, we often take this truth that is given here to reassure us in the opposite way. It causes our faith more trouble than reassurance when it's given to reassure and not cause trouble. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons is you you think that it takes away your choice somehow. You think that somehow violates, like it doesn't matter what you do. Well, that's not true in the Bible at all. Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Of course you must believe. Of course you must come to him. He even calls it work. It doesn't violate your choice. 
Parents, you get this. You try to build your house to go in a certain way, and within that certain way, your children have complete freedom. But even more so, one of the reasons it's most troubling is because you try to figure out whether or not you have faith by whether or not God elected you. You try to peer into God's election to understand whether or not he'll keep you safe. The Bible does it exactly the opposite. You look at whether or not you trust God or trust Christ. And if you trust Christ, then you become assured that God will never lose you. It's just through simple faith in Christ. That's it. So how do you know whether or not God, the Father, has given you to the Son? Well, you look at whether or not you love the Son. Do you trust him? Well, then you praise the Father because he gave you to him. We read in verse 44 that no one comes to the Son unless the Father who sent me draws him. How do you know if the Father drew you? I mean, how can you peer into God's mysterious will and go, God, did you draw me? Well, have you come to him? If so, then you can be assured that the Father drew you. It's meant to give you more confidence, not less. We are never, ever given to look into the mystery of God's election. We're only meant to look into whether or not we love Jesus. And then we're reassured that if we do, it's because of the Father's grace. And so we praise him for it. And so we keep it very simple. Again, look, listen to these simple words. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. You're not God. All you have to do is believe in the Son. And be reassured that you have eternal life and that's because of the Father's kindness towards you. It's meant to reassure you. And so, if you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. Isn't that wonderful? And that's because He came to give it to you. That's because the Father sent Him to do it. And so we love the Father because He did it for us in His Son. Let's pray. Father, we are so often weak and doubting and we put that on you as if there's something wrong with you when it's just our our own unbelief. And so teach us the simplicity of just looking to your son. Help us, oh God, by your Holy Spirit, by your work with us to be more diligent and just raising our eyes to your son and finding in him all the peace and rest and reassurance that we have eternal life because he lives, because he died and rose and lives for us. And so, God, give us the gift of faith in your son, stronger faith, more simple faith, more enduring faith. Give us faith that would cause us to endure any other pain or loss in this world for the sake of knowing him. And so, God, teach us to seek eternal life. Teach us to hunger and thirst for life forever with you. God, we ask for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen.